0: Paramedic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and we're lucky to have a couple special guests with us on the podcast today. First of all, we have our MCHD Education Lead, Lee Gillum. And Lee is gonna be joined by Jennifer Dantzler. And Jennifer is the executive director of the Including Kids Autism Center, which is located here in the greater Houston area. And Jennifer was gracious enough to join us during our mandatory education session recently here at MCHD. And Jennifer talked to uh, all of our paramedics about ways that EMS providers can communicate and care for autistic kids and this was very well received and we really wanted to bring jennifer on to share her message with all of our listeners and i'm going to go ahead and let lee take over the questioning and hopefully this is really useful for everyone take it away lee
2: well welcome everybody thank you dr patrick for that wonderful introduction uh, this is Lee Element Education Supervisor with Montgomery County Hospital District. I'm here with Jennifer Dancler today, as Dr. Patrick introduced her. Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit more about your background in history?
0: Sure. And what drew
2: you into autism?
0: Yes. So I am a licensed behavior analyst in the state of Texas. I'm also a board certified behavior analyst, which is the national accreditation. I also am a special ed certified teacher in the state of Texas. And I started my career in the world of autism back in New Jersey after college, working in home programs for people with autism. Then I went up to Boston and did my master's while working at the New England Center for Children, and then proceeded to go to Baltimore and work at the Kennedy Krieger Institute while receiving my postmaster's certificate in autism. And then ended up here in Houston, Texas about 20 years ago, where I founded uh, Including Kids Autism Center a local nonprofit serving children and young adults on the autism spectrum. I originally got into this field. It started in high school when I went and did mission work one summer in Puerto Rico and was asked to sit with a little boy with special needs. And it was right then and there that God kind of said to me, this is going to be your calling. And then after that I just uh, started working in New Jersey for home programs and just fell in love uh, with the field of applied behavior analysis and with people with autism
2: wow that's pretty amazing i know every career has individuals that get called to that profession but that's pretty amazing that you started out from a mission trip when you were younger in your youth that's pretty awesome so tell us what specifically is autism and what does it mean to be on the spectrum
0: so autism is a neurological developmental disorder it affects core functioning in social skills communication and adaptive behavior skills and self-help skills So what it means to be on the spectrum is uh, all of those skills can be affected to greater or lesser degrees. So someone on the spectrum who might have deficit in social skills um, might just have challenges with uh, navigating social situations, while other people on the spectrum might be completely nonverbal or not be able to um, understand safety in the community. So the spectrum means that there's a huge range of ability but yet under the same umbrella of autism.
2: So what individuals do you see are the most challenging in your profession?
0: So usually the, what makes it the most challenging are the people who cannot communicate their wants and needs effectively. So someone might be very verbal, but it doesn't mean they can communicate well. So they might be able to speak in fluent sentences or use even very sophisticated vocabulary but might be lost or hurt and can't necessarily communicate that. So the challenges arise for first responders because they can't, people on the spectrum can't always explain their needs and or explain maybe their medical history or what's hurting. And so figuring out how to get those things understood can be the challenge.
2: So that kind of takes us into that next question. How do we in healthcare and public safety and the other various aspects of society, how do we learn, how do we better communicate with those people who have autism and how do we know where they are on the spectrum and does that even matter when we try to communicate with them?
0: So the biggest piece of advice I can give is to keep it simple in the communication. Usually if a first responder is interacting with someone on the spectrum, it probably means there's some anxiety around the situation. And so we tend to, in human, in society, use complicated language. So less is more, right? Um, keep it simple, silly. Or, uh, and so we need to simplify our language, slow it down to where it can be processed, because many times people on the spectrum need a little bit more processing time. And so we need to give an instruction, ask a question, and then wait for them to process the answer. Getting louder, speaking faster, um, repeating it over and over is not going to help someone on the spectrum process what you're saying and then be able to give an answer. So it is hard to, in the moment, figure out where they are on the spectrum. But by keeping things simpler, trying to reduce the sensory input, meaning if we can turn off lights and sirens, if we can have fewer people interacting with the person, volume does not get compliance. So maybe in other situations where first responders have to get tougher or more strict, that's not going to help the person with autism comply. So usually trying to um, keep communication simpler, not using figurative language. Many people on the spectrum are very literal. So if you're using figurative language like put out your arms like Superman, um, they might not necessarily understand what that means. So doing things through imitation can do it like me, do this. um, And then again, pausing and waiting, trying to reduce the volume and the input of the situation is going to be probably the most effective strategy.
2: I see. You know, one of the biggest things that us as first responders where we get tunneled in on is we get called to the scene of a motor vehicle accident or we get called to the scene of somebody having chest pain or respiratory problems and we literally barrel in. I mean, the scene of a motor vehicle accident, you've got sirens, you've got police, you've got uh, wreckers you've got fire department you've got an ambulance showing up and that can be overwhelming i'm sure uh, especially for the individual who has autism i can imagine how it is for the general public with all the lights and sirens and they've just been in a wreck and how that makes them feel let alone somebody who has autism with all those stimulus factors coming in and bombarding them the same thing that we're you know when we go to somebody's house we show up and you know first you might have the fire fire department show with a up uh, and then you might have EMS or the paramedics show up. And then you might have law enforcement show up. So you constantly have these barrage of individuals coming into the scene. And we always want to find out what's going on. What happened? What's going on? What happened? What's going on? And I can see how that would be very overwhelming to somebody who has autism. So we basically, to summarize what you said, just kind of slow a roll. Walk into the scene. Ask those simple questions. And we may not even know that we're entering a scene of with somebody who has autism. Are there some nonverbal communications cues we can kind of pick up on sometimes that might lead us down that path that hey we're dealing with somebody who might have some challenges communicating and processing what we're asking and saying
0: there can be Um, not always but sometimes there you might see certain repetitive behaviors in the person Uh, so that's what we call um, like stimming or self-stimulatory behavior sometimes also known as automatic reinforcement And what happens is the person with autism has figured out some coping mechanisms for themselves. We actually all stim in some form or fashion. We tap our knee incessantly. We um, stroke our hair if we're tired. uh, We bite our fingernails. We've just figured out what the social norms for those are. Okay, So someone on the spectrum, usually those behaviors are just a little bit more exaggerated. So if you were to walk into a scene and see someone pacing in a very specific routine pattern. If you were to see them engaging in some kind of um, hand fidgeting or body rocking, I hate to use that one because that's somewhat cliche, Mm -hmm. but some people on the spectrum do rock. It's very calming for them. If you see them... um, what we call scripting, which is repetitively um, saying the same thing over and over. It's a calming mechanism. If you see some of those behaviors or if you ask a question and they give the wrong answer. So WH questions can be really hard. You might ask them, where's your mom? And they might say their mom's name. Okay. Someone else who's not on the spectrum won't have a challenge Answering the question the wrong way. They might not answer you, but they won't probably give a different WH answer, right? They will right. just not answer or um whatever they're thinking about in their brain. And so usually it's those kinds of things, echolalia. If you say, if you ask them a question and they repeat your question, right? That's a sign that can be a sign of autism. The biggest challenge with autism. Is that it is such a spectrum so there's an expression if you've met one child with autism you've met one child with autism mm. right which means you might go upon a scene tomorrow and engage with one person on the spectrum who's high functioning what they used to call asperger's and you can almost have a three-part conversation with them about what's going on and then the next day you're going to go upon an accident where the child's nonverbal can engage in self-injurious behavior they're both people on the spectrum However, the same principles still apply when trying to identify it. Um, again, there might be things like um, uh, fidget toys or very personal items that a lot of children or even young adults might have some attachment to, but this is an extreme. Like they can't do anything without it. The other thing for people um, who are either nonverbal or what we call emerging verbal is we use a lot of technology in this day and age. And so if you see someone carrying their iPad or iPhone, Okay, Mm -hmm. it's not that they're trying to look down at their their iPad to try to block you out. It might be that you asked a question and they're about to use their iPad to answer your question. Now, there are a lot of teenagers and children in the world that are carrying (laughs) around electronics. Yes,
2: they are. (laughs) They never leave home without
0: them. That's right. (laughs) But if you ask a question and they immediately try to go get that device, it could be because they're trying to answer your question.
2: So I want to back up a little bit and you use the term Ask Ausbergers or... Uh, earlier, and I know in today's society everybody gets labeled with something. It seems like you know you can walk into a room and everybody you walk out and everybody's going to say, "Oh, that person has such and such and such and such." What is it, Aspergers, and it, is it a big deal or not? I mean, are these individuals that come to work every single day, or are these individuals that do have true autistic concerns?
0: So uh, a few years ago the DSM, when the DSM-5 came out, they took out the term Asperger's. So now everyone from what they used to call low functioning or classic autism all the way up to Asperger's are considered on the autism spectrum. So someone with Asperger's still has delays in the core functioning areas, uh, maladaptive behavior or coping with um, situations, communication in some form, some social skills. The challenge with Asperger's is that unless you know what to look for, it does look like a very quote-unquote typical person, right? Mm -hmm. The challenge is it doesn't mean they have those coping mechanisms just because they can tell you everything about one particular topic or use very sophisticated vocabulary. So the problem is that doesn't mean that they still know how to adapt to a situation or understand safety, So just last week, there was actually an incident in Utah where a 13-year-old Asperger's boy was shot Mm -hmm. by the police because the mother had to call the police because the child was getting aggressive with her. So the police went in. He did not comply because, and even though he was Asperger's, but he was in what we would call a meltdown. So once he's in that mode... The compliance is not going to be um, like it would be for someone else, but yet he appeared very high functioning. So the same principles still apply where just because they're verbal doesn't mean they understand the danger. So someone just walked in in a uniform, has a gun with them, they're asking me to get on the ground, I better do it. Mm. But it's different than someone who's trying to be non compliant or say get away because they're trying to evade um authority they're trying to get out of being in trouble this is they're they cannot cope and they're trying to avoid the anxiety and the sensory input of the stimulation of the situation okay so when you see someone just because they're verbal don't mistake that for not being autism even people on high functioning on the spectrum will engage in some of those stereotypic or repetitive behaviors, some of that echolalia, re- repeating back what you're saying. So if, if, if you learn how to um, to, notice, to notice it, then even when you go into a situation, hopefully that might give you a, a clue that it's someone on the spectrum. And even though they can talk a lot, it you still have to use those core simple strategies.
2: So would you say that Sheldon, on third rock from the sun is on the spectrum.
0: You mean big bang theory?
2: Big bang theory. Yes. Big bang theory. Sorry.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Um, So that was never clearly stated, but yes, there's actually a phenomenal episode where he does a flow chart of how to make a friend and he breaks down everything Uh, into very simple steps. If this, then this, if this, then this, it's a beautiful lesson on how someone with Asperger's thinks systematically and you can break everything down um, into steps where you and I would, do that naturally and we probably couldn't even have broken them down into steps without really consciously thinking about it but that's his natural way of thinking
2: and there's nothing wrong with being different and thinking like that we all have our own modes of thinking and own modes of processing information and that's what makes us unique as human beings is we all have those ways that we process information and i think what what is normal to us is not normal to the individual who has autism But we have to, and there's that challenge, we have to figure out when those individuals, when we're faced with those individuals who have those communication challenges, and then tailor our communication style. I know last couple of weeks when you were with us with our mandatory CE, one of the things that you said, and you said it earlier, is slow the communication and keep it simple. And can you give us some ideas and some examples of how we can do that?
0: Sure. So you come upon a situation and you see that a person who might be on the spectrum is somewhat elevated, meaning engaging in some repetitive body behavior, some verbal scripting or verbal outbursts. We use less language. We say, show me quiet, quiet mouth, quiet body hands down. We don't go into a, um, a whole song and dance, if you will, of, we need you to quiet down. We need you to stop talking because we need to assess whether or not you're hurt. This was a situation. I know you're scared. I know, you know, you need your mom, but hold on. I just need to check you out first. You know, all of that is just noise.
2: So they don't take it offensive that somebody would say quiet mouth or quiet hands.
0: more likely than not no someone high function on the spectrum might say why are you talking to me that way but more um more likely than not they might not necessarily comply But in this situation, I try to give the example of imagine yourself going to another country and you've learned the language somewhat. But now you're in a situation where an emergency happens and you have to go get a police officer or first responder because your significant other is hurt. You're going to try to pull that language out and use whatever words you can. Right, But the more the person doesn't understand, the more anxious you're going to get, and all those lessons that you took online are going to be forgotten because you're in panic or anxiety.
2: That's a great analogy to use. That's a great analogy. I know often, especially at the scene of a remote vehicle accident, we try to get the individuals out of harm's way. So we might try to move them to to the shoulder of the road, or we might try to get them into the back of the ambulance to where it's a little more confined and we can talk to them. Do you suggest us still trying to do that, but using those simple terms such as move here or go with me? Could I say something like come with me or walk with me?
0: Yes, definitely. Um, the, Again, one of the challenges with some people on the spectrum is that elopement or running from the situation can be common because someone on the spectrum might not understand, well, the safe thing to do is to stay with the first responder, not mm-hmm. to run. But again, they want to get out of the anxiety situation, so they want to run. So the more literal you can be, so go sit in the ambulance, right, or right. go stand on the white line. Um move, um, move over here and point, right. Um, even it's, I've we've done things where you quickly just, you know, take something and put a piece of paper on the ground and say, stand on the paper.
2: Oh, that's you know, very simple. Yeah. Some,
0: any kind of visual markers you can use, go stand and touch this pole, right. As opposed to go stand over there, or I need you to get out of harm's way. There's traffic, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just go stand by the pole kind of situation. I see.
2: What do you think is probably our worst mistake that we as first responders and other medical professionals, what do you think we make is probably our worst mistake?
0: That when you give an instruction, them not complying, you're taking as defiance, not as lack of understanding or comprehension of the situation. So if it's, you know, get down on the ground, they're not not getting down on the ground to defy you. It's that everything is too much to process right now and they're scared. I see. So it's difficult because I know, obviously, safety first, Mm -hmm. but the more is not better. So again, the louder you get, the more elevated you get is not going to make them comply. So I think assuming that because someone can speak, that they can understand, and then uh, more is not better.
2: So we could ask somebody, sit here on the stretcher, and could we put our hand on the stretcher and say, I need you to sit here, or would we say, sit here?
0: So if it's not a question that you can't honor the answer to, I wouldn't put it in the form of a question. Okay. I know that sounds rude. Oh, that,
2: No, that's a, that's a great, <laughs> that's a very good point.
0: But if they have to sit on the stretcher, say sit on the stretcher. Sims. You can say please. Okay. <laughs> right. right. Um, but you need to be specific. And what you need to try to also do as much as possible is not invade their personal space. Okay, so if it's pointing to the stretcher, but I wouldn't put your hand on their shoulder to have them sit on the stretcher, this is not because of the um, myth out there that people who have autism are not affectionate. They are affectionate, they do like the physical contact, but not from someone unknown or unpredictable. And so, obviously, in a first responder situation, there's going to be a lot of anxiety, and so therefore just pointing to what the, where you want them to go or what you want them to do versus like putting your hand on their shoulder to calm them, it's probably going to have uh, the adverse effect as it might be with another typical, say, child.
2: So what do we do if we have that autistic individual who's fatuated by something on our uniform, like our ID or our name badge or our nameplate or a stethoscope or something like that, and they're wanting to constantly invade our space, because some responders, it's it's a little scary when you have somebody coming towards you, and you and they're wanting to grab this or their your pen or something like that. How do we manage that?
0: That that definitely can be disconcerting. Uh, when possible, let them have it. <laughs> right. Okay. So if it's your name badge, let them take it and fidget with it. Okay. Uh, if it's the stethoscope and you have another one in the ambulance, let them have the stethoscope. Uh, So obviously, if it's not dangerous, let them have it. The biggest thing is that someone on the uh, spectrum might, again, engage in this stimming or Mm self-stimulatory behavior or repetitive behavior. Interrupting that can actually increase anxiety. So if it's not interfering with what you're doing with, say, your assessment, or you just need them to be at the situation because you're having to take care of their, their caregiver, whoever they were with, if they need to, you know, walk around the stretcher, constantly if they need to fidget with your badge the more you can let them do that the more it's calming the more you interrupt Uh, that the more likely you are to agitate them
2: so you mentioned about stimming earlier and that we all stem in one way shape or form is so the the person who wants to pull or twist their hair that's considered a stimming
0: yes so So there's really three categories of sort of maladaptive behavior you would see There's stimming that we've talked about, which is some of that repetitive behavior. There's self-injury. We do have some people on the spectrum that engage in self-injury. And again, that's usually because they're trying to escape something, how they're feeling, the anxiety of a situation, the sound of something, a demand. And then there is aggression towards others. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, if you can use some of the strategies we talked about, like the calm you know, simpler speech, not invading their personal space, most of the time they won't necessarily aggress at you. The first thing you can do is try to um, find out from someone they're with, do they have a typical history of that kind of behavior? Mm -hmm. Usually if they don't have a history of aggression, if you don't invade their personal space, right, they're not going to necessarily aggress at you. Now if they're hurt and they're trying to escape some kind of pain and don't understand then they might right. come towards you, but in in the you, so you're going to see those three types of situations for stimming. If you cannot interrupt it, that's going to be helpful. Self injury is another complicated one because most of the time people with self injury again have a history of it. So they might have a history of biting their hand oh, or hitting their head okay. or slapping their legs, but they usually don't do it every time to the point where it's going to truly hurt themselves.
2: So somebody who just kind of punches their, just smacks the top of their forehead all the time. And, but they're doing that, constantly that would be that maladaptive
0: behavior. exactly so now that's obviously something over time that might be causing mm-hmm. injury but if you're just talking about right now in a you know first responder emergency situation you're not going to cure that in that situation right, right, right? right. and so whenever possible if now if they're elevated anxiety or hurt and they're someone who engages in head banging they might be hitting their head harder mm. right so whenever you can you try to just put something to block Versus, say, restrain okay. or or hold their hands down.
2: So if you were to go restrain somebody like that, that would even set them off even more.
0: Yes. Again, that's not going to be uncommon to any of us where mm-hmm. being restrained by someone unfamiliar right, is right. going to be very unsettling. And so that restraint can definitely often um, result in increased inappropriate behavior. It's
2: kind of like the saying goes, uh, calm begets calm, anger begets anger.
0: Yes, Exactly. We all know we've had a, a fight with our significant other mm-hmm. and we get louder expecting them to comply and then they get louder and then we get louder and no one wins. <laughs> That's right? <laughs> exactly right.
2: Nobody wins right. and everybody goes to their own co- own corner upset. Right. I, I know one of the things that I've learned in my career uh, is especially slowing that communication style. But we oftentimes will finish each other's sentences. And because we're scripting that narrative or that answer in our head while somebody else is answering. And I have found it very challenging to just pause, say what I want to that person, let them process for two to five seconds, however long it takes, and let them speak. Uh, And that, for me, in dealing with people who have autism, is probably the most challenging thing that I've found in my career allowing them to process and communicate back.
0: Absolutely. The thing I would have people do is practice it. Practice it with a fellow first responder or someone in their home and practice having a conversation where you ask a question and wait two to five seconds. It seems like a lifetime.
1: It does. Uh,
0: but as Temple Grandin, who as a person on the spectrum, has her PhD in animal science, has said, her brain is like a file cabinet. And each, everything she's been taught is in a file in the file cabinet. So when you ask a question, she has to go find that file to get out the answer. That takes time. And so then if you change the question up, she's now got to go back to the file cabinet and find a different file. And she never found the first file. Right. And so it sounds really silly, but the more you practice it, um, then the more likely you are to engage in that in one of those situations.
2: So... You know, you mentioned stemming earlier, and I kind of want to circle back to that. Um, I know I've seen some individuals, and I've seen this more on TV than anywhere else, than even with dealing with patients who have autism or even bystanders who have autism, they'll flap their hands, almost like bird-like. Is there a concern for that? Should we be worried about that? Or we just let them finish that cycle up and try to maneuver them where we need to maneuver them? Is that a common stem? actually, to where they'll flap their hands?
0: Something with their body, some repetitive body movement, it can be common. It is not going to be dangerous for your situation. It might interfere with you assessing them, right, if you're trying to assess with them putting their arms out so that you can assess neurological function, for example. Um, But those situations are not going, you're then not going to be injured from it. In, in some ways it assesses, you know, if you think that they were hurt and they're, you know, you, their shoulders probably not out of socket, if they're able to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of flap both their hands or rock back and forth, if they're walking around in a circle around the stretcher, it probably means that their legs aren't injured right? So you can almost use that as a mini assessment. Again, I'm certainly not the first responder professional, but you can use that in part of your assessment. But if possible, do not interfere with it.
2: Okay. So as we move on into that assessment, you know, one of the things that we always have to do is take a blood pressure, be it a manual blood pressure or automatic blood pressure. And as you mentioned earlier, trying to invade that autistic person's space can be challenging do you have any strategies we could use to say i'm going to take your blood pressure they have no idea what a blood pressure is could you say i'm going to take this and wrap it around your arm and it might squeeze your arm a little bit and what are some simple ways to for us to get us what we perceive as a simple measurement but to where the person who is is severely autistic, they may not want to open up their body space to allow us to do those things.
0: Right. The first thing is to do it by imitation. Oh, okay. Do it on yourself first or oh, okay. on another first responder. Oh, very good. Okay. Then if possible, allow them to push, squeeze the little, uh, pressure bubble button, whatever that you okay. want to call that. Um, and then say your turn. So it's my turn and then it's your turn. Oh, but again, um, what we call shaping is where we do it slow and steady. So at first might be if you have the ability and the time, let them hold the blood pressure cuff. Let them squeeze the little bulb right without it on them. Then we practice just putting it around their arm. Then we let them take a break and maybe watch their a YouTube video on okay. your phone or their phone. Then we squeeze it once or twice. They see that it's okay and they just see, oh, that's a little different feeling, but they're okay. The other thing is to count, right? So I'm going to push the bulb 10 times, right? Or to the count of 10, then blood pressure cuff is all done.
2: Ah, okay. And you had mentioned that during our CE, utilizing a timer.
0: Yes. Timers, whenever possible, timers are are amazing, they're trustworthy, um, and there's a definite end. Timers go off, timers are done. And so if you set a timer, blood pressure might only take 20 seconds. Set it for 30 seconds just to Mm -hmm. be safe. Right. So that it doesn't go off before you're done. And so timers are great. First, doing it on yourself whenever possible. And um, and using again, letting them get used to the equipment first. Let them listen to your heart with the stethoscope first. And then you listen to theirs. If you're listening to their heart, I'm going to listen to your heart to the count of five and then hold up your fingers. Five, four, three, two, one. Uh, So setting a time limit is always very helpful.
2: Should we be worried uh, with medications autistic patients might be taking?
0: So um, it is common for people on the spectrum to take medicines. The uh, most common medicines you see are either for focus or inhibition control. So we see some Ritalin, some Risperdal, some Focalin. Um, we also do are seeing a very high comorbidity rate right now with seizures. Mm. And so um, unfortunately, a lot of our adolescents are even uh, s- developing seizures where they didn't have them before. So probably your your trickiest involvement is going to be whether or not there's seizure medication or seizures involved. Um, and so we do have many kids who have seizure protocols. Uh, so as far as the other medications, we do... Do see medications for behavior regulation?
2: Oh, okay. That helps calm them down, or or keep them out of a panic state, or focus them on on tasks that they need to be able to perform on Cor- a daily bas- basis. Correct.
0: We also see many kids on the spectrum who are on supplements and other kinds of sort of alternative, homeopathic mm-hmm. situations. Which I, you know, I don't know how much the first responders would need to know all that. We are working really hard. Um, at Including Kids and wherever we can to try to help make sure all kids on the spectrum have some form of ID or GPS on them. Um, so my advice to that is also we're, we have to get clever with that for some of our children and young adults. So it's not just the ID bracelet or ID necklace. Um, there's a whole line of clothes right now that has GPS and ID within oh, the wow. clothes. We, we might put it on shoelaces or shoes because they might not tolerate the bracelet or the necklace. Um, and then also within their commu- their device, right, their phone or their iPad, even if they aren't using it for communication, hopefully somewhere on that device is their emergency information. And so we try to educate whenever we can the parents to say, you have to have some form of ID on them so that if they can't explain. There's a lot of our children also who are emerging verbal. I might be able to understand their phone number or their name if I ask them and I know them, but yet you as an unfamiliar person can't. Right. So, therefore, it doesn't matter if they can say their phone number, but it's 767 That doesn't help. So, we try to help educate to where they have some kind of written ID on them.
2: I know one time I actually dealt with an autistic individual who had walked away from home from downtown Magnolia, had walked 12 miles down the railroad tracks, and showed up in somebody's yard. It was the early evening right around dusk, and nobody knew anything, and he was actually an adult. He was in his mid to late 20s, and he was not real verbal, and it took us a long time to communicate with him, uh, even using some of the strategies that you said, and it wasn't until uh, his family had actually called the police department and discovered that he was missing. And that's when we were able to tie everybody together. And he had no form of ID. There was no markings on his clothes. He had nothing in his pockets. And the young man was tired. He was thirsty. He was tired. And I th- he was scared because he didn't know where he was. But he had eloped. And I know you mentioned earlier elopement. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Do, do individuals who are autistic tend to elope more when they're happy? Or they tend to elope more when they're scared? And anxious.
0: Both can happen. Um, more often than not, people on the spectrum who elope, elope because they're trying to access something. A lot of our people on the spectrum are very routine-based, um, almost to the point of ritual. Mm. And so it might be a situation where if typically on Mondays, mom takes them to McDonald's, but mom is sick and can't take him to McDonald's on Monday, he might be trying to go to McDonald's himself. Oh,
2: very good. Um,
0: and so unfortunately, um, a lot of our people on the spectrum very much love water and so they tend to want to go to the water which is not always great because not everyone on the spectrum knows how to swim because they can't go just take that average swim lesson at their local swim lesson place. Right. And so uh, water is very common. Their routines, whatever their routine normally was, uh, and, and, or if they decide they want that Reese's peanut butter cup, they're going to walk to the local store to get that Reese's peanut butter cup. And they'll try cup. to
2: mimic that routine for the day.
0: Exactly. Or even just, again, if it's a preferred item, it's not, Never, but it's not as much the case, oh, that um, mom and dad were fighting. Now, they might be trying to get away from that because of the volume and the sensory input, not because they're unhappy that Mm -hmm. mom and dad are fighting, right? They don't necessarily go five steps down the line to, oh, that might lead to divorce and then where will I live? It's not that. It's that this situation is high stimulation right now. I'm going to avoid it. Um, But a lot of the time, it's really more just because they want access to something calming or something preferred i see i see
2: um i'm going to circle kind of back and and explain to folks when we had an opportunity to meet you and interact with you uh was one of our crews was interacting with an autistic patient on scene and it's been about i think about 30 to 45 minutes trying to communicate with the individual and find out where they were from and uh you got involved and within less than five minutes correct me you were able to to pull some key information from that individual can you kind of relay what kind of questions that you asked and some strategies that you used kind of in wrap up
0: yes so basically it became very clear that this uh, child had created a story now this was an individual who was um escaping home, Hmm. right? He wanted to avoid home because he did have some restrictions put on him. Was this
2: a typical, I'm going to run away from home and join the circus? Yes, literally
0: it was. Um, But what happened was he, he was, he did an excellent job of fabricating his story. And then eventually what I, what I could figure out pretty quickly was that if he wanted to watch, some of his favorite things were watching uh, like Disney Channel and Mm -hmm. watching um, some of his favorite shows and that was very calming for him. So I actually scribbled some circles on a piece of paper and said, for every true answer you give me, I'll give you a check mark. And at the end of five check marks, you'll get to watch your show. But then as soon as he, because when we would ever get to a question that he didn't want to give the answer to, he would say, I don't remember. So I asked him a couple basic questions um, are we in an ambulance? Yes, he got a check mark. Um, it, and then I asked him a couple more that I knew he'd answer yes to. Then I asked him a difficult question. He said, I don't remember. And then I said, Ugh, now I can't give you your check mark. We need to be able to earn the TV show.
2: So again, simple reward system. Very, Very simple. simple reward system. Yes.
0: yes, so that's basically called a token economy, mm-hmm. which again, we could do 12 podcasts on token economies <laughs> alone. Uh, but basically it's about rewarding the behavior that you want to see happen and not punishing the behavior you don't want to see happen. See. We all, you know, um, get, you know, more bees with honey, kind of, like mm-hmm. we all do better with reinforcement than we do with punishment. And so um, trying to get him, get, figure out what that incentive was early on, and then having him get rewarded to, for that incentive.
2: Good. Is there anything you'd like to kind of add as we wrap this up today? We do appreciate your time and you coming out and joining us on this today. Um And I hope our listeners are able to glean something from this. What kind of resources are out there for our first responders, whether they're law enforcement, fire, EMS, or even nurses and physicians in the hospital setting? What kind of resources are out there to help us do a better job?
0: So um, our website is includingkids.org, or you can follow us on social media. We will do first responder trainings for anyone who will listen. Um, autism Speaks has some great resources out there, some toolkits, right for both parents and first responders. There are more and more agencies now that are working on trying to to get these trainings so that you can be safe, but also engage in a situation and not have it be unnecessarily elevated. Um, so the biggest thing really is understanding what autism is and what autism is not. Um, I Again, I think when we hear these horror situations, Um, I think it's because we don't understand autism. Ignorance is not bliss in this situation.
2: Well, and again, as I pointed out, we tend to rush into that scene and we want answers to our fast-bulleted questions so we can kind of derive a solution to the problem very quickly. And that's how our brains are already programmed. And the individual who has autism, their brain isn't. They've got to slow process that information, as you pointed out
0: absolutely absolutely so the, again just the more education the more exposure to people on the spectrum the other thing that i would recommend is if at all possible first responder facilities, police departments, fire departments, ambulance stations, all of that. The more you can have autism friendly days and invite the people from your communities to there to see the ambulances, to practice doing the blood pressure taking, um, to get on the fire truck, to see the people in uniform. uh, So that not only can first responders in that community learn to notice their people in the community who are on the spectrum, but also so that people on the spectrum can get comfortable with first responders, the more we can do that, the the better we'll all be.
2: Excellent idea. Well, Jennifer, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Dr. Patrick? Well, that wraps us up for today. I'd
1: like to, again, thank Lee and Jennifer Dantzler for joining us today on the podcast. This was excellent information about how we can better handle a very special and important group of folks that we care for in the pre-hospital se- setting. Hopefully this puts autism a little more in our front brain and gives us some ways and some information that'll help us care for these folks better. As always, if you have questions or concerns, please email us at the podcast email podcast at MCHD TX.org. Please, please, please leave us a review or a like wherever you listen to podcasts helps us get out there, get more visible And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to everyone again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments which are always welcome can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.